Thanks for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Well, if you've ever driven in or out of Vancouver, there's a good chance you've used the route that includes the viaducts. You've probably also heard us talking about the viaducts over the past many years, about whether or not they should stay, demolishing the viaducts, what the neighbourhood might look like if they weren't there anymore. And it appears after the new council is sworn in, that conversation is going to continue. So we wanted to talk to Brent Totterin, a city planner, also urbanist at Totter and Urban Works, uh, about this and kind of the history of this piece of infrastructure. Brent Totter, and thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, Joe. My pleasure. Uh, are you surprised at all that here we are? It's uh, November of 2022, and we are still talking about the possibility of demolishing the viaducts. Well, not the poss- I'm not surprised we're talking about the possibility. I'm, I will be very surprised, and maybe the better word is exhausted, if we end up starting the conversation over again. Uh, certainly, it was years of conversation, analysis, studies, discussion, and debates back when I was at City Hall, and I left in 2012. And, of course, the actual decision that the viaducts will come down was made in 2015, three years after I left. And And so it's probably a decade in the making, this conversation and ultimately this decision. So, you know, I I certainly welcome constantly the kind of uh, thinking that goes into uh, what conditions have changed. Do we have to tweak decisions? But boy, if we had to start from scratch, I think I want to put my head in a hole. <laughs> Why? What would be the reason, do you think, since, like you said, there's been so much discussion and people working on this, what would be the reason to take it and start from scratch? Well, the, the irony is, in the intervening years, uh, with everything we know about climate change, the declaration of the climate emergency, the, the significant importance of increasing our walking, biking, and transit mode share, decreasing our car share, all the decisions, the policies, the principles that we put into that, plus, of course, all the housing crisis issues and affordable housing crises issues in particular, it's, it's more important, it's more obvious an answer than ever to take down the viaducts and essentially build community there instead of car infrastructure. But it's not at all surprising to me that this still pops up in talk radio and such, because every time somebody driving from the suburbs into the city gets traffic, they're going to say, well, how dare they take this down? Because that's that's their perspective. So I'm not I'm not. And that's their daily observation. I'm not surprised at that. But the 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 literally years of analysis that went into the city making vision, uh, none of that has eroded. In fact, in the intervening years, it's become more and more obvious that it is the right thing to do, whether you're priority is the climate emergency, affordable housing, community building, etc. And if you use the argument too, or, or if somebody perhaps is opposed to this saying that this is one of a, it's an efficient way to drive in and out of the city. I wonder too, if that has changed over the years, because I think while it maybe used to be a rather efficient way of doing that with, with more traffic and if, if people are using those routes, it doesn't seem to be as quick or, or we're seeing more backups on there. What do you think? So how do you convince people or put forward a, a plan saying it's okay if these viaducts come down, here's what the neighborhoods are going to look like, and, and there's still going to be flow, and there are still going to be ways to move through, the, through those neighborhoods, whether you are on a bike, walking, or on transit, or driving. Well, the history, first of all, I don't want to make that argument. That's the whole point. We had a decade of having that conversation. 
But what I would say is, is a lot of this conversation started when in 2010, the viaducts were closed down for the Olympics, then they, uh, for the entire purity of the Olympics. Then they were closed down relatively close after for two weeks for the filming of the original Deadpool movie, you might understand, you might remember. I do. And, and the observation was that adjustments were weighed and the world didn't end. And this, this infrastructure wasn't as essential as some people thought. And, and the, the follow-up of that was a transportation study that said if we continue to grow our capacity for transit, which we've done in the intervening decade, if we continue to do that, we can easily accommodate the removal of that car infrastructure, replace it with an urban boulevard, replace it with uh, lanes of traffic at grade that act in a, in a way that sort of brings the community together and facilitates new affordable housing and a more walkable and connected community, etc. So... It wasn't that the car trips would necessarily disappear. They would be replaced by public transit trips and different kinds of car trips on different kinds of urban boulevards instead of that kind of big car sewer infrastructure. So that was the analysis. And the very first step that was done was a traffic, a a very in-depth traffic study. So and that was done probably 10 years ago. So I, I think the case has been made about that. The problem is. When you have intervening years of, of, of no action, you know, there's, there is a kind of a tendency to say, well, let's revisit that decision every year, which is a great way to put, you know, decision making in a city in paralysis. The important thing to understand is, although the viaducts have not come down, there have been t- at least seven years of decisions being made in the Northeast Falls Creek planning and community based on the clear, decisive decision that the viaducts will come down. And all of the planning and all of the decisions have been made on the basis of that decision. And that, eroding that would actually be extremely hard because there has been a great deal of decision making that has been made on the basis of that decisive decision. And would that include then the building of St. Paul's in that neighborhood and some of the other developments that are earmarked for parts of the, the surrounding area? Well, certainly when St. Paul's was being discussed, the, 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 the recognition that the viaducts would be coming down and replaced by a different kind of infrastructure that would actually benefit the St. Paul's situation. Yes, that's, that's an example of the many, many decisions. And, and by the way, it really illustrates the point of making the decision early about the future of the viaducts. Because I, for one, many people knew that the viaducts probably won't come down for a very long time. But if we didn't know what the viaduct's future was, how could we do all the planning? How could we make all the decisions uh, that would be affected by whether they were there or not? So even though we knew that they wouldn't come down for some time, it was important to decide whether they would come down, yes or no. And so the decisive decision made in 2015 on that was very important for all the planning that has been done since. It's seven years worth of planning. Right. And, and I know you wrote about this, I think it was back in 2017, and looking specifically at the history of the viaducts and what a viaduct-free future would look like. What about cost, or, or, or does that play into it as far as the cost, not only of what it would cost to take them down today, but also if they're staying up, do they not need to be maintained yeah. and uh, to be kept safe? Well, it's funny. Whenever we think about cost, something like how much it costs to take them down, we rarely talk about the cost of keeping them up. And we also rarely talk about the value of taking them down. So when you have a cost benefit analysis and actually look at the amount of 
uh, value that can be created for the city that can get translated into affordable housing or what have you. It's kind of an economic no-brainer. And it's actually staggeringly expensive to have a piece of infrastructure like that that's aging stay up. And what, for one of the reasons being that the city knew that if they were going to stay up, they would need to be seismically upgraded. And it's shocking. I don't remember the numbers, but I remember being shocked by the numbers, thinking, boy, that sounds like as much as it would cost to build them in the first place. So there's a staggering cost to keeping infrastructure like that up and an actually remarkable value that gets created when you make the decision to take them down because you're emphasizing community building and city building instead of keeping up big car infrastructure. So what do you think the incoming council then needs to do? Like you said, the, this doesn't need to go back to square one to the to the drawing board, but to everything built or the planning in that area was done thinking that the viaducts were coming down. Where does a, a new city council even start to tackle this? Well, on the one hand, I don't mind at all the, the, the questions that are being asked by the new councillors because they're raising the point that uh, there, the costs may actually be higher to, um, to ultimately take them down, even though there's a huge value that, init- that ultimately gets created. And remember, that's a cost that the city will have to pay anyway in maintenance or seismic upgrading costs, but it might be a higher number than was expected because of the timing of developers who are supposed to pay for quite a bit of it. Now, the good news is the development activity is actually finally starting to move forward, so that money is going to flow, and I'm very interested to see how that flows. But I don't mind council raising the question about whether other orders of government may need to put up some of the money for this big, important project. What I'm very, very concerned about is often that kind of conversation can just lead to project paralysis, or it can be used as an excuse to do what some people want to do anyway, which is revisit the whole conversation. So uh, I I would like council to be asking those pointed questions, but be scalpel-like in their conversation, making sure we're not just opening up the can of worms of starting from scratch and having the whole conversation again. All right. Well, hopefully we aren't having this exact same conversation five years from now. Uh, But Brent, thank you so much, as always, for coming on the show. Appreciate your time today. My pleasure. We have been breaking down and looking at some of the numbers in the fiscal update released just about a half an hour ago, projecting a $36.4 billion deficit for the current fiscal year. Christian Freeland saying that will shrink over the next four years before turning into a budget surplus of $4.5 billion during the 27-28 fiscal year. Also some announcements when it comes to clean energy investments and the federal government saying that portion of the interest on student loans will be forgiven. Well, we wanted to talk more about this and joining us to look at the numbers is Andre Pavlov, Professor of Finance at the SFUBD School of Finance. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And uh, I know this was just released, uh, the information. Uh, some things re-announced, not new. But uh, what are your thoughts on some of the numbers and what we got in this financial update? Well, I find it really pretty disappointing that we continue to run deficits um, at a time when the economy has been doing great and um, and we have shortages of labor and materials and, and manufacturing capacity. So this is just adding uh, fuel to the already high inflation 
that we have. It is, in my view, this is fiscal mismanagement. This is exactly the type of scenario and, and economy that governments should be um, running uh, huge surpluses and uh, paying the debt. Uh, so the fact that we're running any deficit is, is really um, quite disappointing to me. Uh, and the other issue is we're actually celebrating that this deficit was a little bit lower. The projected the new deficit is a little bit lower than what we expected earlier in the year. It just shows you how desensitized we've uh, become to, to deficit spending at the federal level, uh, which has consequences, and we're coming to see these consequences right now. Uh, the finance minister made a point of when she started making the remarks uh, referencing what was happening in other countries and also saying things weren't booming as much as they were kind of when we came out of the pandemic and that things have slowed down. What is your response to that when, like you just said, things actually seem to be going quite well? Well, at least up until this point, uh, they've been going great. So up until this point, we should have been running tremendous surpluses and, and, and using the money to pay down the debt. So that we have a little bit more for a rainy day when that rainy day comes. And um, actually, I happen to agree that uh, the, economy, the global economy and the Canadian economy are slowing down. And uh, we, we, there is a chance we enter a recession uh, sometime next year. And what do you think that will look like? Because and today in those announcements in, in the when the finance minister made this update, didn't actually state outright in the projections whether or not they felt that Canada will fall into a recession. But what do you think that might look like? Well, it's difficult to predict if we're actually going to go that route because so much depends on what happens around the world. But if we do go that route, we're going to be in a very difficult situation of high prices, uh, especially food and energy, and at the same time, Canadians not being able to uh, find work and, uh, and earn additional money so that they can balance uh, those additional expenses that they're saving. So uh, this is, in a way, uh, if we do enter a, a recession, this would be really a very um, a bad case for most Canadians. You can't make more money, but your co- the cost of everything you consume is going up. The finance minister also talked a bit about things such as forgiving the interest on student loans, uh, about the GST credit, the temporary doubling of the GST credit, which we already knew about that, although it was kind of presented as though it was something new uh, today. What are your thoughts on measures like that? Well, so the doubling the GST credit is, uh, was sold as, as a way to help Canadian families immediately. Uh, but in my view, that's highly misguided. It will not help anyone because when we face supply shortages, um, all that uh, GST credit is going to do is raise the prices of, um, of the goods and services that the recipients consume. Um, and I know the argument has been made that, uh, that the GST credit is a very small portion of the Canadian economy. That's an incorrect comparison. We need to compare the GST credit to what um, the recipients are actually spending and the basket of goods they are consuming. And that basket of goods is very limited, and those prices are now going to increase more than than general inflation, which is already high. So you combine those two, um, you end up in a situation where the recipients are not better off, and people who don't receive the credit are actually worse off because now they have to, um, because now they have to manage... Um, Um, higher costs without receiving the subsidy.
One of the quotes as well from the finance minister, she said, much of the cause of inflation in Canada is externally driven. We're still dealing with supply chain problems because of the war in Ukraine. Elements of domestic demand are being addressed, though, with the Bank of Canada's action on interest rates. What what do you have to say about that and about that kind of assessment of the where inflation is coming from? Well, in my view, this is just trying to blame someone else for our own problems. And, uh, and the evidence for that is if most of our inflation is really coming from abroad, why are we raising interest rates here in Canada? So if the inflation is uh, imported from abroad, then raising interest rates in Canada will do nothing for, to control this inflation. So clearly, the reason Bank of Canada is raising interest rates is that a whole lot of the inflation we're experiencing right here in Canada today is domestically born. It's, it's originated in, in the huge deficit spending that the government incurred over the past couple of years and probably kept the uh, pandemic stimulus too long and, and, and for, you know, well, well past um, the economic recession. And then um, at the same time, nothing has been done to, to allow businesses in Canada to produce more goods and services uh, to meet that additional demand. Um, so it's very difficult. Sure, there are global factors and inflation is high um, everywhere. But uh, in my view, we uh, have done, um, we have caused uh, a lot of our own inflation right here at home. And we should take responsibility for that. And one other question, when you talked about when uh, times are like this and we should be seeing surpluses, uh, in this fiscal update, the projection again for the, the $36.4 billion deficit, but it also predicts, so the budget surplus prediction of $4.5 billion, that's not until though 2027, 28. Is it even possible to make a prediction like that and to, to be accurate? Yeah, I wouldn't hold my breath because we constantly see projections that the budget is going to somehow magically balance itself in the long future, and that long future uh, never really arrives. Um, so when Mr. Trudeau took office, that was the story that we're going to run budget deficits for two or three years because interest rates were low and the economy could use the stimulus, uh, and then things will uh, work out. We know how that ended, and I suspect the current projection is going to end up the same uh, way. Unless we make it easier to do business in Canada by reducing our excessive regulation, red tape, and high taxes, there's not a chance that uh, that uh, the budget will uh, balance itself. These things don't uh, just happen on their own. They, they take actually some um, some action. All right. Andre Pavlov, always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk more about this. Of course, thank you for having me. Well, if you are a Dave Matthews Band fan, you know that song, Crash Into Me. Many, I think, would say it is their most well-known song, one at least of the most popular songs. If you were at the concert in Vancouver last night when they kicked off their tour, you would also know they did not play that song. In fact, if I'm looking at the set list correctly, they only played one song from that studio album. And uh, I was at the concert, I was lucky enough to go, and I am by no means saying it wasn't good. It was a great show. The 
people were very excited. They put on a wonderful show. They had some guests, musicians that joined them on the stage. It was wonderful. But if you were going there to perhaps relive part of your youth or to get that same feeling you might have had when you saw Dave Matthews Band play in 2002, you would not have left satisfied from that show. And I heard many people talking about this at the show. So I thought this deserves a bigger conversation. And who better to have that conversation with than Eric Alper, who is a music publicist. And Eric joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. I love it that you're so feisty. <laughs> I, I, because you know what? I, I went through the exact same thing with a band that I love, like since I was eight. I saw them in concert. They did all the hits. It was miserable. Um, it feels like they were kind of walking through everything, and it kind of got me thinking about the artistic expression versus the business side of music. There's a lot of bands who have real hardcore fans who would pay thousands of dollars for tickets for artists that have been around for a long time. And those artists know that this touring is what is going to be paying for their homes and the alimony and the, you know, eight drug rehab. So they better start, you know, um, pleasing the audience. But then when you've been around for a while, how many times do you want to still play that one hit over and over again, 240 times a year for the next, you know, from the previous 10 years, but potentially for the next 40 years, because I think the Rolling Stones have shown us all, you can tour until you're 70 now. Forget about, like, I'm going to retire at 40. <laughs> no, it's very, very true. Does there not an, ob- maybe obligation's not the right word, though, but a-, a band like the Dave Matthews Band that has such a specific sound and has been around for so long, they must know that there are a lot of people, yes, there are going to be people at the concert that want to hear their new stuff, but there are a lot of people that want to hear their old stuff, and those people are going to be disappointed. Yeah, and I I think that, you know, there's a sense of obligation that the artist should really do. I'm okay before tickets go on sale with the artist saying, you know, look, this is what kind of tour we're going to have. Post that information on Instagram. Like, you don't have to go do a round of media like in the past. You can go direct to fans and say, we're going to play the hits or... We've got a brand new album out. We are so super excited about it. We're going to play all of it from front to back. Or we're going to play the B-sides and lesser-known hits. Maybe start giving off the impression now that people have to decide if they're going to either pay for the mortgage of the house that month or if they're going to try to get floor seats for your show. I think it's okay for artists to do that ahead of time rather than... Well, I saw Neil, uh, Neil Diamond a couple of years ago, and he kind of joked to the crowd that he was going to play a couple of new numbers, so now will be a good time for a bathroom break. Like, at least he was aware of his place in history with regards to new albums that, you know, just haven't connected yet, if at all. But I'm guessing he also made sure to play Sweet Caroline. Um. Yes, he did. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I think. It's funny you mentioned that yeah. because when they got into, I think it was the fifth song and it was their newer stuff at the show last night, I, th- I did exactly that. I said, okay, I'm going to go for a quick break because I don't mind if I miss this song. I don't know what this song is. And that's when I ran into a bunch of people. You would have sworn there was an intermission. So many people got up and left their seats with the same thinking, this isn't really what we came for and, and took a break. But I, I get what you're saying as well. I guess with a band like this, though, that had such a big hit with Crash, 
there's an assumption that they're going to play. I would never have thought to go check out the playlist ahead of time to to see if they were going to play anything because I just made that assumption that, well, surely they're going to play a couple of the big hits from that album. And I think that you're okay with that assumption. I, I think, you know, in the, in the case of somebody like a Dave Matthews band, that, you know, if you go to the, the, the Billboard Americana chart, for instance, they have 24 top 10 hits. Those 24 songs is a nice two-and-a-half-hour show, even if they don't play the hit. So you might be disappointed that they didn't play, you know, you know, us crash into me, but then I might be disappointed that they didn't play I Did It or The Space Between. Um, And so that's that kind of fine line. But I will say, though, if I'm paying money to go see Elton John, he better be doing Rocket Man. (laughs) Well, and we both would have been disappointed by that because those three songs you just listed, they didn't play any uh, of uh, any of those I would have been bummed out with you. You and I just would have been in the corridor. (laughs) That's when you know that something is up and that, you know, I, I think that when you start to see people, even during the big songs, kind of maybe shuffle slowly back to their seats because they know what kind of, you know, what kind of tour that this is going to be. But yeah, I usually check out set lists well ahead of time. But unfortunately, you know, I think by the time that the tour starts, you you would have already had to have tickets in hand in order to either get excited or not care that you're going to miss the show. Exactly. Do do you think, too, it's a case with bands that there will always be some bands that don't want to accept the fact they are going to have to play the hits and that's what people are coming to see from them, that people aren't particularly, at least not everybody, is interested in new stuff? For the most part, all of the artists I've ever worked with or I've talked to during those really quiet moments, they are so happy that they've had at least one hit. I mean, forget about two or three or four. The fact that they were able to create something in complete isolation away from everybody else and connect with 50,000 people all singing that song back to them is magic. And they can't create it at whim. They have to kind of grab it while they can. Um, But then there are some artists that despise their biggest hit. Mm -hmm. They don't like being monkeys. You know, they don't want to trot out this song that you might have you know, been watching them do this song twice. Um, but they have done it on every single television show around the world over and over and over again. Um, or um, that they think that that might be their worst song ever and that they're really mad that other songs that they thought should have, would have, could have been, you know, hits just as much never worked for whatever reason. So um, artists, they're, they're, they're a weird bunch of folk. <laughs> so almost getting mad at the fans, uh, telling the fans, you didn't pick the right songs to, to really love. That's what the internet is for. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can go, you can go on Facebook and Twitter and find your community and uh, go nuts. Yeah, for sure. But um, I wouldn't be surprised, for instance, and I think artists have to keep this in mind for the future, that, you know, if you don't play the songs that people are going to recognize, maybe don't be so, so upset when maybe your shows don't sell out as quick in the near future because word gets around very, very quickly and, and so extreme, too. If you saw this show... And you're in Vancouver, I'm in Toronto. I might have never, ever been able to see 15, 20 years ago how disappointed you were. Now, in real time, I can see what kind of a show it is from anywhere in the world deciding whether or not if I'm going to spend my hard-earned money on that tour.
Yeah, and I was thinking that, especially since it was the kickoff show. And, and I should say again, it was a really good concert. And the, the guests that they had, it was it was wonderful. Sure. But I, again, I wanted to talk about it because it just did seem odd to me, especially when I, I was thinking about this. And I don't go to a ton of concerts, but I did recently. Yeah. I got to see Stuart Copeland. He came and played with the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra. And guess what? He played the police hits. And I've seen Alan Doyle as a solo artist and guess what he played the great big sea hits so certainly it's not it's not wrong it's not a bad thing to play and to to continue riding the wave of those hits yeah i and i would expect you know i i would be so so mad if Stuart copeland didn't do any hits but then <laughs> if he had announced look i hate sting so much that i don't want him to get any more money from my my shows, um, then I can kind of understand that, and at least this way, be prepared to listen to ninety minutes of really great instrumentals. Um, but some bands have a really clear golden period, and they should know that everybody is coming to see and hear that music. If they've gone decades living off of their back catalog, that's what people pay to see. So it's it's so many different things that, you know, the increase in popularity of Fleetwood Mac's Rumors album, for instance, or the fact that that song by Fleetwood Mac everywhere is really everywhere, thanks to being in a car commercial. It's number 10 right now on the iTunes chart. If this song everywhere wasn't in their set list in the last three years. It better be the next time that they come because I think they're going to get and see that a lot of new fans are going to, that's their entry point into it. So maybe for somebody like Dave Matthews, you know, it was just too many hits and, and they got to leave something out. Do you think they'll look at the feedback or bands even care as long as they're selling tickets or if they notice a change that they might actually change their playlists? They, they absolutely take a look at the audience and they see everything from demographic to, um, you know, the BIPOC community. They see age groups. They see people coming with their parents. When Def Leppard, you know, a band like that, for instance, when they go out on tour or Joan Jett and they start to see, you know, grandparents with their grandkids, they know that they're, the grandparents are there for hysteria in the 1980s. But if they start to see teenagers, kind of, you know, maybe their entry point is the greatest hits album or one of their new albums. But they can kind of take a look at, I mean, they know. They see the record sales of their latest albums, and they know that it's not selling as much as in the past, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that material might not be um, unworthy to play. Because they're super, super proud of it. Most bands that want it, ha- that tour, if they have a new album, uh, they're they're not going to want to talk about the olden days as much. They're going to want to talk about and play songs from the new record. All right. Well, I knew you would be the perfect person to talk about this, uh, Eric. Thank you so much for joining us and for having the discussion. I appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Oh, wait, Dave Matthews is here, and he says he's <laughs> coming over to your house now. Yeah, I, we should probably end the call. Well, he better bring his uh, instruments, and he can play Crash <laughs> Into Me while he's there. Start to play Crash Into Me, you're right. <laughs> All right, Eric, thanks again so much. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye.